Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. Happy New Year to everybody. We were on a little bit of a holiday hiatus, so we hope everyone had a nice holiday. I'm Andrew Gutman. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Beth Feely. We are two accidental activist parents who spoke up about what was going on at our kids' schools. Uh, And now we talk about the challenges and problems of our education system with various people. And occasionally we have somebody that has some ideas on how to fix our broken education system. And I think we have perhaps one of those people today. We are very happy to welcome Jeremy Tate. Jeremy is the founder and CEO of the Classic Learning Test. He is also the host of the Anchored Podcast that features discussions at the intersection of education and culture. Prior to founding uh, the Classic Learning Test, Jeremy served as Director of College Counseling at Mount DeSales Academy in Cantonsville, Maryland. He received his Bachelor of Science in Secondary Education from Louisiana State University and a Master's in Religious Studies from Reform Theological Seminary. He has, I think I can say, uh, is a proud father of six children, um, and he can be found on Twitter at JeremyTate41. So, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Andrew, thanks for having me, Beth. Uh, great to connect. Thank you. Welcome. So I, I thought we'd maybe start big picture for our listeners who aren't as familiar as maybe the three of us are with with what is classical education. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what is classical education? How does it differ from what the three of us might refer to as, you know, progressive education? But I think pretty much everybody else sure. thinks of it as just, you know, regular run of the mill education. Yeah, you know, Andrew, an analogy I, I like to use that I think it makes a lot of sense is, is actually like the raw milk analogy. Uh, and so right now, if you're like edgy and cool and hipster, you're drinking raw, organic raw milk, right? But what we call organic raw milk now was just called milk in the 17th century and every century before that. It wasn't until all kinds of toxic additives were added uh, that we had to then add this description, make it a bit longer to start calling it or- organic raw milk. But what we're really describing is what milk always was. I think for classical education, simply is education uh, as it always was really until about the beginning of the 20th century. And I think through a combination of some ideological things connected to the Industrial Revolution, what we call education fundamentally changed. And what changed more than anything else, I think, is the basic telos or end goal of education. Uh, Every other generation, as I've been able to put it together, was fundamentally going after character formation even more than the passing down of a body of knowledge. Uh, education was often called formation, right? He's being sent off to formation. She's being sent off to formation, shaping the person uh, around a traditional understanding of virtue, right? Self-discipline, self-control, temperance, right? We think about the four cardinal virtues or the seven, the seven, uh, you know, lively virtues uh, as well. So this is, that was the goal. The goal now seems to be uh, more like credentialing, uh, maybe college and career uh, readiness, uh, versus uh, this the shaping of the the, the human person uh, in a way to, to to bless others. A lot of what you just talked about have kind of Judeo-Christian flavors to them in terms of the virtues and the values. Um, was it necessarily religious, or does this go back even uh, before, perhaps, uh, like or, or include like Greek and Roman? It's interesting to me that education didn't really seem to change a whole lot for like at least two thousand years, and what would have been a, a considered a good education. Plato's Republic, you know, was the same, you know, when when Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or go even further, even into America's founding generation, right? Uh, ben Franklin or, you know, 
John Adams, but especially, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, they weren't Christian leaders or, you know, even maybe theists. We could, we could, you know, debate all that, but they had a vision of education that was rooted in this great tradition. I mean, in many ways, the whole American experiment was just taking, you know, 17th century enlightenment philosophy and applying it to a country. Uh, and so it was very much rooted. I mean, for Ben Franklin, education was the study of languages. Uh, it was the study of philosophy, uh, of classic text. Uh, the fact that now what we call education is totally disconnected from everything they consider to be the meat and potatoes, uh, the substance of education, that all of that is now gone. It would be inconceivable to tell Ben Franklin, you know, we, we have a new form of education, free for everyone, but no philosophy, no classical languages, no, it would be like, what, what is it then? Like, what are you doing then? It would have been almost inconceivable. So I think it, it doesn't just come before, I think, the, the classical tradition was carried on within the Christian church, but it precedes that as well and was absolutely carried on by, by Avicenna and Averroes in the Muslim world as well. So I think it absolutely goes beyond uh, Christianity or any one religion. Now, we seem to be seeing a renaissance, if, if I can use that word, of classical education, both uh, at the K-12 through level, uh, to some extent at the university level, as, as sort of a, a backlash to you know, the politicization of, <laughs> of, you know, most public and private schools. I mean, is that, would you agree with that? I think a renaissance might be understating it. I, I think it's an, an absolute explosion. I mean, you cannot find a classical charter school that I can't find one that doesn't have a wait list, often as big as the entire school or a whole lot bigger. And I hear these stories, you know, families sitting around, you know, in the living room as they do the lottery to see if this kid's going to be able to go to, to this school or not. And I think the reason why classical education is so explosive right now is because this taps into what every parent wants for their kid. Well, what parent doesn't want their kid to go to school and to come back more honest and, and trustworthy and to grow in their sense of wonder and curiosity, right? I mean, this is what every parent dreams of for their children. And I think when parents see this this vision for education, uh, they say, yes, sign me up. My kids go to the same schools that I went to, and they are different. Um, and I had kind of assumed that they were getting the same type of education, which was a very good public education. Um, I don't know that it was exactly classical, but it definitely featured a lot of the elements. Um, what, I guess, what are some of the what are some of the um, ramifications? Because the classical model has been out of the schools for a while. Yeah. What are some of the ramifications that we're seeing? And then I guess if we don't, if we don't maybe return to this, what, what will get worse? Yeah, it's a tricky question because the, the change was so subtle and it was over a century, right? And so education just changed a little bit almost, maybe one degree like every year for a century. But then after a century, you're like, wow, it's we're doing something totally different. If you lived through it, the change was too subtle to really even notice, right? When do we stop teaching logic? When did Latin move out of the schools, right? Uh, and so the change was 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 very subtle. What are the ramifications? Like what, what are we seeing in students that are exiting schools that are devoid of Latin, that are not learning, you know, goodness, what's good, beautiful and true? Um, you know, I, I'd love to hear from your perspective because I think you're closer to this. Yeah, I think that the number one thing, if I had to pick one thing, I think would be a, a breakdown of, of kind of civic, basic civic knowledge, actually. Right. And so it was probably seven years ago now that it was actually I think MSNBC, they did uh, an article that they released on their own study of young people that could actually pass the U.S. citizenship test. And they released this article and it says that uh, the majority of us couldn't pass. But what was really interesting is that if, for, for people under 45, for people under 45, only 19% of 
could pass a U.S. citizenship test. But what's really odd about that is that's also the most educated demographic in terms of formal education. And then the flip side for senior citizens, for people over 65, it was the exact opposite. 74% could pass a U.S. citizenship test. So something really changed. And, and it's not just, you know, some people say, well, let's just add a civics class and that's going to fix the problem. I, I think it's it's a whole lot more than that. I, I think it's uh, it has to be coupled with uh, cultivating a love and a gratitude for those who came before us as well. You know, and it's, you look at the origins, I think, of even teaching history. In many ways, the origins of history is kind of to inspire uh, heroic virtue, right? I mean, George Washington was very much inspired by Cincinnatus and his giving up power when he could have been a king. And uh, and so we're, we're losing something very central to the American uh, ethos and kind of our, our DNA. I mean, 100% of the founders had a, a classical education. There wasn't anything else of this. So in some ways, it's, it's hard to even know for sure, you know, what, what we've lost or what the what the ramifications. But I do think civil unrest, when most people, most of us don't know how the country was set up to work, don't understand the basic concepts of self-government, that's one of the ones that we're already, I think, experiencing to a large degree. No, that's a really good point. And I think I, I'll take back what I said. I think I am closer to it, not necessarily my kids, mm. but you definitely get the sense among the youth of today, like they're almost alienation from the country. It's kind of cool to think America's the bad guy. And they've been taught that essentially. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then also kind of, and maybe this is um, more broadly in society, but just like family, like a lot of the things that I think we took for granted as being, you know, mm-hmm. good, like seem to be questioned and, uh, you know, people, it's sold as being inclusive, but it actually is, I think, probably the product of getting away from what some of the roots of education and what our values were. So no, that makes yeah, sense. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. How'd you get interested in education? It's something you've always had you know, a mom for? was a career, a career Spanish and French teacher. Uh, and uh, and so I don't ask me, <laughs> and public schools. So don't ask me to, to speak in and I was public school K-12. Uh, but don't ask me to speak in French or Spanish. I was always very resistant to it, but partially because my mom said that you'll use it one day, I promise. And and uh, as a pragmatist, I was like, I'll never use it. And I so badly wish I would have learned at that point. But so I was, so, so you know, and my mom was, wasn't just a teacher. I mean, she was a great teacher. Anyone who's ever had my mom would say, your, your mom changed my life. I'm a teacher because of your mom. She was in the public school arena, you know, the entire time. And I had, a, I think, pretty decent, you know, public school education. What happened to me is I, I went in, I taught in inner city New York right after I graduated from LSU. I taught in Brooklyn for three years. My wife taught in Brooklyn as well. She taught in, she taught in, in Bed-Stuy. Uh, so a lot of the kids are coming out of the, the Marcy Street projects there. I taught in, in kind of more of the Bushwick area, both fairly rough neighborhoods. Um, but I, I was in this setting where it was like, I don't know that I met a single student. I really don't, who had two married biological parents. The entire three years I taught there, everybody lived with an aunt and uncle, a grandma, typically, typically a grandma or an aunt, and um, complete absence almost of, of men in the in the community that were responsible in any way connected to raising children, and it was almost like a spiritual wasteland. And in many ways, nobody was dealing with it, and like we weren't dealing with the needs that these kids had. They were starving for any sense of meaning or purpose, uh, and instead, we were offering them. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of very progressive young teachers that were going in to teach in our inner cities. And I, I remember actually very clearly Dr. Wilkinson. He was one of the few people at my school who grew up in Brooklyn. He's this very tall, well-built guy, African-American guy. And, and he called out one of the young progressive teachers and he said, look, 
you know, you're selling this victimization to our students, but what you're doing is you're stripping them of agency and you don't even realize it's what you're doing. The, the teaching them, the whole world is stacked against them. They, they don't need to be hearing that, you know, right now. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, but, but yeah, I was really exposed to that. And then what happened, Andrew, to, to kind of finish answering the question, um, I was in seminary after I had taught for three years in inner city New York, and it wasn't even the point of any class I was taking, but it occurred to me in seminary, almost like an epiphany it was just like, wow, like for every generation, as far back as we can go, market ancient Israel or whatever, whatever, they were going after something fundamentally different in education. And the primary thing they were concerned about was, was passing down a way of life, uh, passing down a way of life, passing down values. Um, and then also a body of knowledge around that. Uh, but it was like, when that hit me, I'm like, wow, we're doing something totally different now. That's kind of unprecedented. you like, historically, you know, this is, this is very new and it's, it's an experiment that doesn't seem to be going very well. Now, let me ask you something. When you were, you have a degree in education from LSU. Yes. Is that yeah. right? Were you taught the same progressive stuff, you know, the, the, the child-centered, you know, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the critical theory, the CRT? I mean, were you taught all that stuff that we hear that is pervasive in education schools? Sure. I think to some extent, I mean, being in the South in the early 2000s, you know, not nearly as kind of egregious as I think a lot of a lot are getting right now. And but overall, I mean, it was not a very useful major. Probably the only class that I took that was really helpful was actually a history, uh, just a survey history of education in America. And that was really interesting to me. And, and I remember we got in a discussion. The professor had said, essentially nobody nobody really wanted uh education to be what it currently is in mainstream education and he was making a case that when you had compulsory education laws introduced around or after the civil war in, in new england um uh, that you had denominational infighting going on between different different groups about what exactly was getting taught and so a solution a band-aid solution was like well let's just we'll remove religion out and they can do that as kind of a break period or something like that and that, that But it ended up being paving the way for a model where we almost had a separation of any kind of even traditional moral framework from main, what's, what's now become mainstream education. Let's jump forward. You started something called the Classic Learning Test. Tell us what that yes. is. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm very, very interested in, in, in the genesis of that. It may seem like such an odd and boring and kind of random place to start. Like the history of standardized testing is fascinating, by the way. And so the college board, which you all know, makes the a owns the AP and PSAT and everything else. They actually started in the year 1900, a long time ago. And they basically used kind of the old army alpha tests from World War One, which talk about high stakes testing. The army alpha was administered to figure out like who was going to be in intelligence and who was going to go to the front lines and face bullets. So like talk about high stakes testing. That was the army alpha. So Carl Brigham from Harvard took that 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 cognitive testing concept and introduced the SAT. It launches in 1926. It's not that big of a deal until after the GI Bill in World War II, uh, because at that point, you suddenly have way more people applying for college who can now afford it uh, than kind of seats available. Colleges quickly become very, very selective. And the SAT works as this kind of like a sorting mechanism in a way. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it was very democratic. And, and it was helpful because instead of kids just coming out of, you know, Phillips, Exeter, and Andover, it was, you know, your unsuspecting kid in rural Mississippi or Chicago or something that could be identified as, wow, super high cognitive ability could come in. The ACT launches in 1959, and they they launched as a critique to the SAT, basically saying, this isn't fair. 
students should not be tested on cognitive ability, innate cognitive ability. They should be tested on what they learn in the classroom. And at first it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then you're like, wait a second, which classroom are we talking about? Right. Is this a Jewish school? Is this a Montessori school, a Catholic school? And what they meant was the, the, the public schools. And that's not a hit on public schools. This is just kind of a synopsis of the history. The ACT basically gobbles up market share away from the SAT for a period of, of roughly 50 years. And during that time, especially once you get into 2005, the SAT goes hard away from aptitude testing. When you hear aptitude Can I stop testing, you for one second? Because yeah. I'm really curious, because something I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with the history of the ACT. Did that lead to sort of a centralization of curriculum nationwide? Absolutely. That... Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, the thing about the historical context, so 1959, Sputnik, space race, the big bad Soviets, everybody's freaked out. We need to get up our game in math and science, right? And so the ACT says, you know, these two students should be taught on what they learn in the classroom. They emphasize math and science heavily on the test. And so the college board is starting really late. To the detriment of history and English? Uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say okay. so. Uh, but then starting in really 2005, the, the, A, the SAT pivots to be very similar to the, 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 the ACT. And okay. then the, the new SAT, which launched in 2016, is really kind of a carbon copy. In fact, the CEO of the college board, David Coleman, says we removed every trace of aptitude testing from the SAT. This is a test that was originally called the Scholastic Aptitude Test. And now they're saying we've removed every trace of aptitude testing. So then what is it? Well, it's a common core aligned public school achievement test. And so then you say, well, why did the college board do this? Why did they align with the common core? It's actually mostly just money. They, they started using the test to contract with states uh, to have every kid in the kid in, in the state take it as a graduation requirement. That's making sense. So essentially the, re the way CLT launched is we saw all of this happening 2015, word breaks that, that the SAT is aligning with the Common Core, especially the homeschool world, totally freaked out. And they said, we didn't sign on to this. The Common Core is anti-fiction. It's anti-classics. It's anti-religion. The math is all kinds of weird. We don't even know what they're doing there. And didn't uh, they and have to, to yeah. bribe the states to even adopt Common Core? Wasn't there a race to the top? Like the government was issuing payments to-, to Yeah, to yeah, yeah. And it went really, really quickly, you know, kind of kind of raced through the governors, you know, in, in a period of just several months before people kind of knew what had happened, right? And so it was really- it was a a way to, it was a a play for market share, right? That college board wanted to re, retake market share from the ACT, and they said, okay, if Common Core is aligned to the, the law of the land, the SAT is going to be aligned to the Common Core, and and that's that's going to be our value prop. And instead of relying on mom to register a kid for the test, we're going to contract directly with the state, and the state is going to require every kid to take it as a graduation requirement under the under the guise of. Uh, expanded access to college entry, right? What they're also doing though in that whole course is just data mining every kid. And we can talk more about that and how that all works later on. Um, but this is kind of the story. The last part to answer this though, Andrew, is that you're typically taught in ed school as I was uh, to think of testing primarily as an evaluative tool. And tests are evaluative tools, of course. But testing is also pedagogical. Tests themselves also teach. And they convey to young people in a very powerful way what is and what isn't important. And not only are they pedagogical, uh, but they also drive curriculum. And so if, if schools and teachers and administrators know that on the most important tests, our kids are gonna be reading Frederick Douglass, they're gonna be reading Ben Franklin, they're gonna be reading Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, that's gonna fundamentally change what they're doing in the classroom 
as well. And that, that's what we uh, have seen. And that has been true. CLT now is seven years old. When students take it, you know, yeah, they're going to be reading Martin Luther King Jr. They're going to be reading Ben Franklin. They're also going to be reading passages from Plato's Republic. They're going to be reading passages from St. Augustine. The Common Core, the SAT, the College Board, Christian or not, if somebody's a Christian or not, they really do censor the entire intellectual history of, of Christendom, which in many ways, you know, gave birth or, or preserved this body of thinking uh, that, that was central to uh, America becoming a nation. Right. No, I think some people consider, you know, your test probably test of the patriarchy. I mean, I think that that what you're testing is totally yeah. different. I'm kidding. I'm I wouldn't call it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, no, it's uh, but it is. It's it's such an important point about the control. Um, that this was a built-in market, and then you yeah. also can control what kids are learning. So it sounds like a, you know, pretty savvy decision to do this. But um, so you've got this test and it is serving the needs of homeschoolers, uh, classical Christian schools. It's accepted by 200 plus colleges. Um, how, I guess, uh, how much of the market have you captured, I guess, in terms of that? Like, are all of them on board and that's maxed yeah. out? Like, what are you seeing? And then also I'm interested in, you know, could this be a tool to get into public schools or could parent use it to use it to evaluate like what gaps their kids are having when they're not getting a classical education? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, Beth, uh, the public school response is, to us has been very negative. And, and you know, we have said we're Shocking. not changing. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're saying we're not changing the test. And they're saying, well, you've got C.S. Lewis and, and John Paul the Great on there. And we say, yes, they're two of the most important. Yeah. I'm not saying you have to be a Christian. I'm saying if you are or not, they're two of the most influential thinkers of the entire 20th century, and students should know that, regardless of what school they go to. But there, it's almost assumed that it's okay to have this bias against people of faith. So students never come to, to read these texts. And so we've been very stubborn of saying, we're not changing. Uh, but I, I think on the university side, in some ways, CLT more and more is serving as a litmus test for parents when they look at the schools that we're partnered with. If a school just hates the Western intellectual tradition, well, they're not going to talk to CLT at all. Uh, but if a school loves it, a place like Hillsdale or something, not only are we accepted, but it's it's often the preferred test. And what so what grades would you be taking this test? I, I think I saw on your website there's there's yeah. multiple tests for for various different grades. Is that right? Yeah, CLT is now third grade through uh, all the way through senior year, uh, and so we're we're so different tests each each grade. Yeah, so we're okay. actually field testing or piloting uh, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth uh, this academic year in the spring. Uh, that'll be norm reference over the summer, but then uh, we've had for a number of years now a CLT eight for seventh and eighth graders, uh, a CLT ten, which is our competitor to the PSAT. Uh, and trying there also to compete against national merit, and then also this, the, the CLT itself, which is kind of the college entrance exam part of it. And it, is it just liberal arts, or is there math and science on these tests as well? Yeah, and in fact, the math, if you talk to a student who has taken the CLT, they're going to tell you the math is the hardest part of it. It's it's only a third uh, quantitative reasoning, so it's weighted a little less than the SAT, which is 50-50, uh, but there's no calculator allowed. And, you know, we made this argument a few minutes ago that the tests end up driving the curriculum, and I even remember being in probably middle school or early high school and teachers saying, you can't use a calculator in my class class, and you can't use one on the SAT either, you know? And it was like, all right, well, if you can't use one on the SAT, you know, you, it makes sense that we're not using one here. As soon as the SAT greenlights a calculator, you get a, a, a full generation that becomes very dependent on a device. 
And I mean, and this is what's different about the classical schools. You ask a classical school, what's the point of math? Why do we do math? Right. Versus asking that question in a typical public school setting. Typically, the, the public school setting is now very pragmatic. It's that we're going to use it in some way. Right. Whereas actually, historically, that's not actually why we did math. It wasn't initially just the pragmatic benefit of doing it. Math actually, it shapes people as well. It, it, it kind of... Uh, informs them that we have we live in a world with order uh and a world with with beauty and so um well that's what we're seeing uh on the math side is we're trying to introduce students to more traditional math that's not dependent on a device uh, as well we'll be back with more take back our schools right after this Hey, it's James Lalex here, one of the co-hosts of the Ricochet Flagship Podcast. This week, Peter Robinson and Stephen Hayward, who's sitting in for Rob Long, we're going to be talking to Annie McCarthy about Russiagate and Garagegate and all the other stuff. And what can we do about the FBI, really? So tune in to the Ricochet Flagship Podcast here on the Ricochet Audio Network. So you obviously believe that there is value in standardized testing um, because you created one. Um, yes. So what's your response to the uh, increase in schools and colleges um, saying, you know, you don't have to report your scores. Just if you don't want to report your SATs, then don't. Yeah. What, what's your response? Like, do you think there's any any merit to that or do you think that I, I actually do, which may be surprising. I think in my generation, you know, I'm 41 now, but it was almost like your SAT score was like branded onto your forehead and and you know, <laughs> you're like a 10, you know, a 980 for life and that's just who you are. That's not healthy. Like that's toxic. That's yeah. not good. We've gone to the other extreme as well. I mean, what is a standardized test? Well it's a it's a snapshot into where a student is at in some key academic areas in a given moment in time. And once you try to make it anything more than that, that's not helpful. So the colleges, we were at about 30% optional, test optional pre-COVID. We're at about 91% right now, test optional. Meaning, yeah, I mean, think about that. 91% of colleges are saying, we don't um, need them. A couple wow. have already gone back. Uh, MIT went back to requiring a test. Purdue went back to requiring a test. Um, I know of a handful of others that are not public that will be going back to requiring a test. It'll get announced in April or May of this year. The pendulum is going to swing back a little bit, but not anywhere like it was before. Uh, and so there, there's a number of things behind this. But one of the big things was was the two things that happened during COVID, right, is we had tests were hard to come by, right? And so they had to make exceptions there. The other is that you had in the, the, the kind of the George Floyd summer, you had Congressman Bowman stand up on the floor of the House and, and make this case that standardized testing uh, has been a pillar uh, of systematic racism in America. And if a college is terrified of one thing, it's being called racist, right? Sure. And so colleges very quickly said, "Oh, we're good. We don't we don't need to require a test." Um, but there's also a downside to that that a number of colleges are already experiencing, and it's a it's a tremendous financial burden in some ways for colleges to bring in an incoming freshman class um, that simply can't do the academic work sometimes. And and so we did this so suddenly that many now are just beginning to kind of feel the feel the the consequences of that. Yeah. And, and going back to what the congressman said, okay, so 
we can't do the test because the test is racist. That is actually hurting some of the kids who benefited from having that test. Um, which you, you kind of said at the outset, yeah. it, it was a bit of an equalizer showing aptitude. Yeah. Perhaps there hadn't been seen some. Um, yeah. Terrible. And MIT, MIT made this point so, so clearly when they went back to requiring a test, because, because what, what happens at a place like MIT or Princeton or Harvard, when you go to being test optional? Well, the, the soft things, which means often connections to the right people, but also, you know, getting your patent for inventing something as a 17 year old or, you know, writing your book and getting published. It's easier for families with means to do those things. Uh, and setting for a test is actually one of the ones that is, is more of an equalizer, as you said, Beth, yeah. than, than some of the other things. So MIT did a great job of, of thinking this through and making a case for uh, assessment, I think, as well. But it's also connected to a larger war, I think, against merit as well. Uh, this is the concept in general. Which well, is it's a, related, which is I think, myth, also right? to the affirmative. That's what, that's, that's what the, the phrase is now. Meritocracy is a myth. That's what all of the DEI departments basically preach. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's related to the affirmative action fight as well. Because if they lose, which they likely will in the Supreme Court, then they have even more motivation to not have scores because then they it, it's harder to see if they are discriminating against Asians for, you know, based on race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question. Is there is there a sta- more or less standardized classical curriculum? And I know, for example, Hillsdale, you know, has their curriculum. A lot of charter schools or Hillsdale charter yeah. schools. Um I don't know if you worked with them or based your test off them, or if there is something that is sort of a standardized classical r- curriculum. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I've even been in, in the room with a lot of these, you know, the, the kind of the, the main leaders from the, the classical renewal movement. And believe it or not, it's actually very, very hard to even define what is classical education, right? It's a tricky question, right? I mean, even beyond not having a standardized curriculum, so I think what you would do is you look at the reading list at a place like St. John's College in Annapolis, which is a great books college, or the reading list at a place like Thomas Aquinas College or or a lot of what Hillsdale utilizes. I think you can see a common thread in terms of a common kind of canon there in terms of the great books. Uh, but then does a classical education mean does it require uh, classical languages? Is that a, is that an inherent component or not? I think people would would debate that, you know, I think to me, the big, the fundamental difference is that the, the main telos, rather than being credentialing and, you know, college and career readiness, the, the, the telos, the end goal is, is character development, human formation, the cultivation of virtue. That's where I, I kind of marked the line. I'm not even convinced necessarily that the, cl- that classical education needs to be tied to the Western intellectual tradition. I think it's great. I think these are great books, but if you're in the East and you're, you're reading deeply from Eastern classics as well, uh, that often, you know, I think that can also still be called a classical uh, education. Is there, though, do you have a hope and or 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 fear and hope, I guess, in the business sense um, that the CLT does wind up if it's, you know, phenomenally successful, standardizing classical education the way you spoke about the ACT to some extent doing that or AP doing that at the high school level? That is a very thoughtful question, a remarkably thoughtful question. Yeah, I don't. I would not say I hope that. I, I don't think I would say I hope that. I do think though that we've been surprised how quickly. Um, you know, CLT is only seven years old, so we're still fairly young. We just celebrated our seventh birthday, 
I think uh, schools look to our reading list, uh, look to CLT analytics. So CLT is used, it's administered at a lot of Christian schools, Catholic schools, charter schools, not publics yet, unfortunately, um, unless you're a public charter. Uh, it's administered, yes, as a college entrance exam, of course, but also even more so uh, as an internal metric, right, to give the school insight. Well, say you care about classical literature, say you care about philosophy, how do your kids actually do reading philosophy? How do they do... The, the SAT or ACT is not even trying to capture anything like that. You know, there's there's no philosophy or or, or even a religious text, you know, on the SAT or ACT. So, yeah, I I, I think it, it may be a helpful, but I, I think it'd be a bit, uh, perhaps a bit arrogant to say we want to be the one to define, you know, what is and isn't classical education. But you're not looking to get into the curriculum world. You are going to stay in the testing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, we work very closely. I mean, some of the leading curriculum providers, uh, Classical Academic Press or Memoria Press, uh, we work very closely with them, you know, already. And we're developing some things right now to have readers that 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 allow these because there's an interest already in, um, you know, parents know. Like, if you want your kid to go to Hillsdale, CLT is 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 a great you know way to to get in. They're down to I think a 17% acceptance rate right now. Uh, and so that does then have an impact if the curriculum companies can say, hey, you know, this is uh, focused on CLT source material or the author bank. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an author bank that has, you know, two thirds of every, every two thirds of all the passages we put in front of students come from our author bank. There's about 210 authors on that. And we actually don't do that ourselves. We kind of defer to our academic board which is made up of heads of schools. It's made of homeschool leaders, charter school leaders, uh, kind of leaders in this movement that we've said, hey, if you could help us, uh, instead of us being the self-appointed experts, uh, if you could help us identify what is, you know, the best uh, that has been thought and said. And there's some great, you know, arm wrestling and debating and chatting, you know, what 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 this list is going to be and who is going to be on it, who's going to be off of it. Uh, so I think to that extent, we're going to have an impact on curriculum uh, but yeah, Andrew, super thoughtful question. I love it. How, how significant is the homeschooling market within within the classical education world? Yeah, a couple of things there. I mean, I think we've even seen a shift since we launched. I think, it, you know, there were more families early on. I think that were a bit skeptical of classical. I think that's more your evangelical homeschoolers that are a bit skeptical of why would we be reading, you know, pagan authors and, and whatnot. Uh, but I, I think the homeschool world as a whole has it, it gravitates towards traditional education. Part of this is semantics. I mean, where is the line between just a more traditional education and classical education? So I do think CLT certainly encouraged a lot of homeschool families more in the direction of, of embracing the classics and using one of those curriculum providers. That has happened. We've also just seen this explosion of homeschooling, right? I mean, 1973, we're at about 13,000 homeschoolers nationwide. Today, it's upwards of 5 million and growing rapidly. And it's growing across demographics. I mean, the Black black homeschooling families are leading the way uh, at 16%. Uh, the president of our academic board here at CLT, Angel Adams Parham, Yale graduate, PhD, uh, and, and she she uh, homeschooled her own kids until they're in high school now the past year in the classical Christian tradition. Um, and also this is where we're seeing the biggest, we, when I taught in inner city New York, we talked a ton about the achievement gap in education, mm -hmm. you know, and then by that they're talking a lot about the gap between black kids and white kids and, and different demographics, right? But the greatest achievement gap I've ever seen is it is a gap between homeschooled black students and homeschool and, and public school black students. And just on reading comprehension, it's over 40% difference. 
difference on how they do in a reading comprehension test. So night and day differences. So I think that the the, the merit, right, of, of what these students are able to do, I think is speaking for itself. And I think in many ways, you know, some of the stakeholders, the unions, I think are, are nervous for how successful some of these new models have been. I love it. Um, one other um, item that you offer are scholarships. And so how have those played into offering the test? Um, like how have you utilized those? And I understand, are they available to anybody that, that takes the test or what is what is the scholarship program? Yeah, we, we try to keep the website up to date, but it's, it's tough. You know, colleges are, are always adding and changing and, and adjusting a little bit. Uh, scholarships based on CLT. Typically, if a college has not already added a CLT scholarship, if a student says, hey, will you, will you translate my CLT score uh, onto your scholarship grid for an SAT or ACT? Colleges are generally pretty, uh, you know, happy to do that. So yeah, we have, we also fund our own scholarships. And so we're, we're trying to compete against uh, PSAT and national merit. Often when we connect with the head of school, we say, well, why do you administer the PSAT in seventh grade and eighth grade and ninth grade and 10th grade and 11th grade every year? And they say, well, for national merit. We say, oh, well, great. How many kids get national merit? And at best, it's like 5% if a school is like off the charts, right? Typically, it's not anywhere near that. And so you're like, wow, you interrupted an entire day of school for five years because one or two kids will get national merit, you know? And so with that, we're, we're trying to compete against national merit. And so we have partnered with the American Council of Trustees and Alumni to offer more money uh, or the same amount of money that's actually a little bit easier to access as well through the CLT 10 uh, versus the PSAT. Last question. I don't want to put you on the spot. It's not really too political, but you I don't know if you've seen in Florida where I recently moved uh, DeSantis administration just sort of taking over a very progressive college, the new school. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure, I don't think they're calling it, you know, classical education, although there's someone from Hillsdale affiliated with it. I think they might even be calling it conservative education. Uh, we've obviously seen the university system go very far left. I mean, the, the ratio of, of conservative to, um, to liberal professors is, is, you know, one to 30, one to hundred, depending on where, you know, what school you're at. Any, any thoughts on, on, you know, on what they're doing there in Florida and higher ed and how to reclaim yeah. universities from where they are? Yeah, I, I mean, I love the disruptive spirit. You know, Chris Rufo is a friend. Matthew Spalding is a friend. I, I think that they're doing good work. And I, I would call that their vision for education is is absolutely classical. I, I don't think that would need to be or, or certainly very, very close to it. Um, yeah. And look, I mean, you've seen we've seen a 13 percent contraction in kids going to four-year brick-and-mortar liberal arts colleges. And not only that, we're now at 60% of all college uh, enrollment is, is female, right? We're, we're losing men. Men are not are less and less interested in going to four-year colleges. And uh, and it's it's changing every year. You know, just last year, it was 43% uh, men, 57% women. In one year, it jumped to 60% women, 40% men. And I think during this time, we've seen this narrow swath of schools kind of like Hillsdale. Hillsdale is a great example. Grove City, Cedarville, like I can name Franciscan, Benedictine, Thomas Aquinas College. Uh, your, your narrow band of more conservative colleges have gone the other direction. They're setting enrollment records left and right. And so I think this is good for this college down in Florida as well. I mean, it's simply just like market common sense. If 95% of colleges out there are catering to 50% of the country, you know, I think the political left for a college like Hillsdale to say, actually, that that's not our market. That's not who we're going after. It makes a lot of sense. So there is a blueprint for a, a new model. 
And also the other thing about this, Andrew, is that I think the graduates really do speak for themselves. About a third of my, our, our, we're about, we're only about 26 full-time at CLT. We're very small, uh, but about a third of our employees are Hillsdale graduates. And these young people are phenomenal. I mean, you really don't meet young people like this much anymore. They're doing something really different. And the fruit in the life of these young people, it speaks for itself. And I think employee employers are starting to catch on to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, a young person who goes to college for four years and they come back with a sense of responsibility, a sense of gratitude to what they've received from previous generations, that that's a rare gem, I think, in the current state. Well I said. Visited, yeah, I've um, visited Hillsdale. Fingers crossed I'll get one of my kids to go. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the guide, I think I've said this before on the podcast, the guide started off, the student guide started off saying, you know, here at Hillsdale, we, we're here to search for the truth. And I'm like, great. That's, that is what I wanted to hear. It's just, um, no, it's a refreshing campus. And, um, you know, speaking of disruptors, you're, you're one yourself. So, uh, we are very happy to hear of the work that you're doing and wish you well, um, in your endeavors. We hope it grows. Uh, we hope that there will be more classical schools that will sign up for and homeschoolers and, and other disruptors that are signing up to take the test. Um, so thank you. And where can people find out more information um, about yeah, Beth, Andrew, uh, yeah, thank, thank you both. Uh, uh, our website is cltexam.com. Uh, you, you can Google us and find a number uh, of, of kind of news coverage about what we're doing as well. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Jeremy Tate 41 is my handle. Uh, I've been really grateful for you both in leading conversations. I mean, p- parents are thinking about this. They're talking about it around the dinner table. So thank you all for being a great resource for families as well. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Take care. All right. Thank you. I actually want to use this as an evaluative tool so that I can figure out how to, you know, fill in where my kids are not getting a classical education. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, we seriously considered homeschooling our daughter, who's now 14. I may do it for the last few months of this school year. Uh, as we talked about on our last podcast, which was a couple yes. of weeks ago before the holidays. Andrew and his at. education woes. <laughs> we're looking at British boarding schools. We're actually yeah. going next week for two weeks to tour some boarding schools. Uh, but we might for the remainder of, once she gets in for the remainder of this year, look at homeschooling. And, you know, I've-, I've Take her out? It. Take her out, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I've read a little bit of homeschooling resources when we looked at this about a year and a half ago. And, you know, one of the questions- was was there a more or less standardized, you know, class? I, I love the idea of classical education. Uh, you know, was there a standardized kind of curriculum? And and there are some books that kind of take you through curriculum for each grade, or at least for you know elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, and it's something I need to look at again. Uh, yeah. And and I think the CLT test might be a really interesting guide to that kind of curriculum. So I definitely, I haven't gotten too much to look at it, but I'd like to do that. I know there is in the uh, younger years and my, um, some of my Christian homeschool friends, classical, and I'm just not remembering the name. Um, so anyway, so I know that I know what they exist. And the nice thing about it is just the flexibility. I mean, you can, you can put in whatever you want. And my guess is that just read a couple of books about it and you'll have a fairly clear picture. Um, yeah. And so the hard but thing, but it's not easy, especially as you know, get to the high school well, homeschooling's not, I, I did it for one subject and it was not the, you know, I think both of us would say it's not the greatest experiment. However, um, it, I just know too many people who have had very successful experiences with it. And the thing is it's really efficient. So you basically 
do your school in the morning, and then you have the rest of the day to go, you know, to go become a competitive athlete or to be in plays or just, it is so much more efficient. It just shows you how much of regular school is spent in classroom management. So, um, and you, you know, exactly what your kids learning and making sure it's high quality, et cetera. Um, so well, good luck with the, with the quest. I mean, that's, uh, you made a big, yeah, move. we'll see. What happens. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But I mean, going back to the United States, so I mean, we not homeschooling is not for everybody. I mean, this is one of the conversations in our broader movement, the parents movement, whatever you want to call it. Everyone said, well, take your kids out of school. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, um, who's the psychologist, we had the, the psychiatrist, Leonard we had Sachs. Le- right. Yeah. Leonard Sachs. Thank you. Sorry. You know, who, who, who gave that message. And I think our last episode that we did before the holidays, you know, take your kids out. Yes. You know, we did that. Some people can do that. We talked about that last time. Um, but we do need alternative schools and that, you know, the classical school model seems to have an enormous amount of momentum behind it. You know, we're not going to make public schools into classical schools. This as you know, as we talked about today, Jeremy said, I mean, this does go back a hundred years and I'm doing some research for, for some stuff that I'm doing about the genesis of, of sort of the like progressive John movement, Dewey and John Dewey and others. Kind of industrialist orientation so that yeah. kids know what to do in the factory versus, you know, it's not even that it, it, to think and feel and love and appreciate well, feel in love. Yes. They, 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 to some extent, they do talk about feel in love, just obviously not from a, religious or faith-based or Judeo-Christian foundation, you know, they talk about the whole child. I mean, that, that part of part and parcel with the progressive movement is the, you know, the child centered and whole child uh, education, which is not, which is the antithesis right. of a knowledge-based education. What is a knowledge-based education effectively is what classical schools are teaching. Are you reading about Paolo Freire? Is that what? Uh, yeah. Well, oh, yes, this, we don't, I have a, behind me, I have a, People can't see this because we don't do the video, but yes, I have a bookshelf behind me and I have two Paulo Freire books on my bookshelf right behind where I do the podcast and others. Yeah. Other, but, uh, I mean, he was definitely a, a huge influence in that as well. But he's later but, and his, it's yeah, interesting because I think his 80s. books were in the seventies. He didn't have influence. Uh, I want to say until the nineties uh, when he was sort 80s. of reintroduced, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe late eighties. Um, by a guy named Henry Giroux, I think, if I'm if I'm right. remembering, who sort of introduced him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but the progressive movement, mm-hmm. this is a hundred years long movement away from what we talked about today, away from classical education, away from a great books education. Uh, and, you know, there's so many reasons for it. And, and I do think a lot of these people that that they meant well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think but, they did. I mean, well. You know, you have to look at societal impact. I mean, I'm sure the Industrial Revolution played into it. I'm sure there are a hundred um, of, of inputs. Yeah, I think what bothers me, and we touched about it a little bit, is the hostility towards Christianity in particular, but pretty much faith in general in so many of our public school settings. And it was, you know, it's one of the underpinning um, you know, it's one of the foundations of our country. We're not a Christian country, but clearly those Judeo-Christian values fueled um, yeah. many of the ideas that we are based upon. And, you know, even in my kids' own school, they they say, you know, there will not be a Christian affinity group because that's the dominant religion. And, you know, the way that, that Christianity is taught when referenced, it is all about the crusades all the time. And it's just, it is very biased. Um, and so I you know, I think that's wrong. And that is something that I would like to see dialed back. Um, and it, I'm not saying that I need all the public schools to be Christian, but just to have that appreciation 
um, for faith um, in in a school setting, uh, because I think otherwise you what are you left with? You know, I, I think it's I, well, I think you see the absence of it. I think you see, you know, just how do you find, how do you have a compass, you know, and and why it, it's just not fair to the kids, you know, who do value faith. Yeah, it's this the impact of the absolute separation of church and state that's happened over the last I don't know fifty or sixty years mm-hmm. in public schools, something like that. Um, it, you know, I think is certainly part of this is the the not patriotism aspect of this. Um, that's also part of this. There's the anti you know white male aspect of this that I you know I think they all kind of go together, um, all tied to the kind of progressive movement. Um, so mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of pieces to this story. And that's when I get asked the question, well, how did we lose schools? What happened? It's not an easy answer. You know, there's no quick, there's no evil James Bond villain here that's destroyed schools. There are a couple of bad people here and there. Um, but even, even the Paulo Freire's, even these very Marxist philosophers, he wouldn't, if you call them philosophers, critical theorists, for the most part, I think they thought they were doing the right thing. They had horrible consequences as we're seeing now, and hopefully more people are waking up to that. But mm-hmm. but I think, you know, the, the the message is that this is a complex story about how we lost education. And we'll, we'll mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we talk about. So the one thing they did all do is they put man at the center and things don't necessarily end well when when we become God. Well, man versus God, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not man, but not man versus woman because they're trying to take man right. away no. from this. If you're talking yeah. man versus woman, which we can't even say anymore, it's it's not that. If you're talking about man versus God, then yes, I'd agree with you. For today, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share it and give us a positive review. And then we hope you will join us again. On behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, this is Beth Feely, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.